He didn't have to die. He knew they were looking for him. After Germanicus stood firm against wild beasts in the arena, the crowd was angry. They wanted more Christian blood. They wanted the bishop's blood. And they knew who the bishop was. It wasn't a secret. They shouted, let Polycarp be sought out. Someone brought a warning. He had time to escape. But it was only after members of his flock begged him to leave the city that he finally agreed to stay with friends in a country house nearby. According to the account written and circulated by his church afterwards, he spent his time there as he was used to spend his time in prayer. And as he prayed, it says he, he had a vision, as if the pillow beneath his head was full of flames, a prophecy of the way he would die. Pursuit followed, of course, and he went to another house, but they captured two young men in the first home, and under torture, one of them told what he knew. The ones who recounted the story afterwards remembered that, like Jesus, those that betrayed him were those of his own household. Already, his story began to draw him closer to his Lord. The account says that they came after him on the day of preparation, about supper time. And again, he could have escaped, but instead he waited. And when they arrived, he came down to meet them. He ordered that a meal be prepared and set before them. And he asked only that they would let him pray just for an hour before taking him away. The story says those who had come to arrest him watched in astonishment as Polycarp spent the next two hours standing in prayer, unable to stop. He was so wrapped upward to God. Till finally, some of the soldiers began to ask themselves, why are we arresting this venerable and faithful old man? Finally, he said his amen and was taken into the city. And again, he had an opportunity to avoid death. A high-ranking official, Herod the Ironarch, along with his father, Nicetus, met him and invited him up into their chariot. And as they rode along, they began to argue and plead with him. What harm is there in it, they said. Just a few words, Lord Caesar. Just a small sacrifice, just the usual ceremonies observed on such occasions. Why not make sure of safety? At first, for some time, he stood silent. But finally, when he spoke up and refused their advice, they were angry. They began to berate him and violently shoved him from the chariot dislocating the old man's leg in his fall. But even through the pain, he got up and pressed onward toward the stadium, toward the roaring and ferocious crowd. And as he entered the stadium, a voice spoke to him, saying, be strong, Polycarp, and show yourself a man. No one saw who spoke to him, but the brothers who were with him heard the voice. And finally, he stood before the proconsul. And as he stood there, I wonder, I wonder if he thought back over his long years as a follower of Jesus and a member of his church. As a young man, Polycarp had known the apostle John and other members of the apostolic band. He's a second-generation Christian. He had known many who had seen Jesus and who met violent ends because they refused to abandon their absolute commitment to the Lord. 
In midlife, he had exchanged letters with Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, who had been arrested and was being taken to Rome to face the lions. Polycarp must have thought many times about what he would do if the hour ever came when he had to face that same question. St. Irenaeus, in his early years, knew and spent time with Polycarp, and he describes the Bishop of Smyrna's conversation and teaching, how he would speak of his familiar intercourse with John and with the rest of those who had seen the Lord, and how he would call their words to remembrance. Whatsoever things he had heard from them respecting the Lord, both with regard to his miracles and his teaching, Polycarp, having thus received these things from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, would recount them all in harmony with the scriptures. And so I have to wonder if the now aging bishop cast his mind back again as he entered the arena to face judgment. If he saw John's face again and heard him speak, John telling the story about leaning against the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. John talking about meeting Jesus beside the lake after his resurrection. John, for whom that relationship with Jesus was so totalizing and transformative that it became his fundamental identity, that he no longer called himself John, but the disciple Jesus loved. And I wonder if those words resounded again in Polycarp's spirit as the proconsul begged him to relent, to honor Caesar's deity and stay alive. We live in a culture today that glorifies youthfulness, but their culture had a reverence for old age, for those who had lived many years. And we can almost hear the proconsul pleading with him, have respect for your old age. Act with wisdom. Surely an old man, a leader like this, shouldn't die in this way. Swear and I will set you at liberty, he said. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp looked at him and answered, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? How can I deny the one who loved me and gave himself for me? The proconsul urged him, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent. Reject these Christians who deny our gods. It's easy. Just say, away with the atheists. But Polycarp looked around and gestured at the pagan crowd and said, Away with the atheists. <laughs> Not what he was looking for. Again, the proconsul asked him, and this time Polycarp seemed to get a little testy. He said, look, since you pretend not to know who I am and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. If you want to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you'll hear them. The proconsul said, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, no. We're taught to give all due honor to the authorities appointed by God. So I've thought it right to offer you an account. But he's a follower of the true king. He doesn't owe a defense of his actions to the mob. He doesn't have to defend that allegiance. The proconsul tried threats. I have wild beasts ready. I'll cast you to them unless you repent. Notice this language of repentance. But Polycarp answered, call them then, for we're not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Okay, said the proconsul. Seeing that you despise the wild beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you will not repent. 
But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and soon enough is extinguished and are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why are you delaying? Bring forth whatever you will. And the proconsul was baffled. Because all through their conversation as he appealed and argued and threatened, and in spite of the old man's injured leg, with each answer, Polycarp seemed more and more full of confidence and joy, his face filled with grace. Finally, the proconsul gives up. He has the herald announced three times, Polycarp has confessed he is a Christian. There's a confession for you. What a crime. And then the account says the whole multitude cried out with uncontrollable fury. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. And the crowd demanded that he be burned alive. So they built a pyre and they put him in the midst of it. And it says they were going to nail him to the wood so he wouldn't try to wrench free of the fire in his agony. But Polycarp stopped them, which at first might seem strange that he would refuse an act that could somehow suggest a connection to the Savior. But understand, he's not trying to avoid the pain. He had heard a voice. He had received a calling, a vocation to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. And so here's what he says. Leave me as I am, for he who gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me to remain without moving in the pile. As if to say, I don't need you to secure me there with nails. I'm already held secure by the nailed hands of someone else. They bound him, they placed him in the pyre. And as the torch approached, he began to pray. O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, God of angels and powers and of every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Spirit among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, just as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, remember his vision, and now have fulfilled. Therefore also I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. As he said the amen, the fire was kindled. And here's what the account says. As the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it, they bear witness to his martyrdom, his witness. We beheld a great miracle and have been preserved so that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked. 
or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor as if frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoking there. The flames encircle his body, but he doesn't burn. Finally, they say, this isn't going to work. They send someone to stab him with a dagger. And it says that as the blade pierced his side, those nearby saw a dove fly up to heaven and a great flow of blood so much that it quenched the flames surrounding him. The unbelievers who saw this were stunned. Some of them started to mutter amongst themselves, don't let his followers take away his body or they'll start worshiping this man instead of the crucified one. I mean, look what just happened. As if we could ever forsake Christ, the account says, who suffered for our sake. But they don't know. The authorities listened. They refused his followers the body and placed the old bishop's corpse in the fire. Now it burned after his death. But afterwards, the church was able to gather together his bones. They said as as if they were most precious jewels. And they laid them to rest in a fitting place where they could gather each year to celebrate, not to mourn. It doesn't say that. But to celebrate with joy and rejoicing the anniversary of his martyrdom, his witness even to death. Both in memory of those who have already finished their course, it says, and for the exercising and preparation of those yet to walk in their steps. And they wrote his story down. This is the first martyrdom account of this kind that we know about, somewhere around the year 160. And they sent it from the Church of God, which sojourns at Smyrna, to the Church of God, which sojourns at Philomelium, to be distributed to all the churches. And still today, here, we remember his story as the Church of God that sojourns at Waco. And here tonight, as we hear the story again, we remember the words of Jesus himself in the second chapter of the Revelation to John in words addressed to Polycarp's own church, the church at Smyrna, in the scriptures. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so with those who bore witness to Polycarp's faithful and victorious witness, we also pray that with him we too may be found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.